0: Yo, what's up? It's another episode of Real Sankara Hours. Uh, Real Sankara Hours, um, Black Marxist political podcast. Today is Wednesday, May 26th, uh, 2021. Um, So yeah, we have another, this is another free free episode. Um, Episode number 90 something or whatever. Um, Follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter. Um and support independent black media, uh Patreon dot com slash reels on car hours. Again, patreon.com slash reels on car hours. Five dollars a month gets you bonus episodes. Um anywhere between one to four dollars a month does not get you bonus episodes, but it helps keep this podcast afloat. And also like I'm gonna uh try to I know we have a PayPal um and I think what I'm gonna do probably from now on is include the PayPal link in the show notes so if people want to make a one-time donation, um, rather than like a monthly contribution, that would be greatly appreciated as well. So anyway, let's, uh, we'll, we'll, um, yeah, so today we're going to be talking mostly about the one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, who was, um, murdered by police in Minneapolis, um, last year. Well, basically like yeah, May twenty fifth, twenty twenty, and today is May twenty sixth, twenty twenty one. So it's been a, a yeah. full year since his murder. So anyway, we're gonna talk about that and then an article about Biden's response to Palestine. So let's get into it. I'm I am Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson Five on Twitter.
1: Hey, this is Peter M Gunn. Uh follow me at M Gun Peter, I suppose. And yes, here to the day. I mean, I remember You know, when it happened last year and thinking, and I think maybe, I mean, you can go through the archives, (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. I guess,
1: and see what we had to say. I remember thinking like, oh, it's just another one of those. And then I think it was probably the police station burning down that I was like, oh, shit. And then I realized like, okay, this is actually on a qualitatively different level than the, you know, mundane killings that go on. I mean, I think for some people, like when I poke around in, like, the QAnon, <laughs> you know, they obviously have their own little stupid theories about it, but I think the reason they have to theorize so much is they can't just accept that, like, this is just, you know, a mundane daily occurrence, and it's just this one was at the wrong time and happened to be on video. Mm-hmm. But, yes, I mean, yes, and to commemorate it, um the, uh you know mr rhodesian vibes himself uh flew the you know family of george floyd but also special guest a uh, little baby was at the white house
0: yeah and uh i um i'm gonna sound like an old fucking fart old man because there's so many of these little rappers like lil this lil that little pimple okay. little that little. Zit little zat little zoo little zZ like so. There's little baby and there's little not X, and there's little boosie and there's not Lil anymore. Oh, uh, I mean, well, he's he's it's appro- badass. Uh, 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 well, he's approximate. He's little approximate. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I actually listened. I just before this podcast, I listened to um, uh, little baby. Well, it wasn't really an anthem, but he had a song that he that you know got major play during a george floyd uprising last year so um i i take it that's why he got invited to yeah the white house
1: yeah he, i guess he became the self-appointed spokesperson but also let it be said that uh it, it appears that trump and biden do have the exact same approach towards black political leadership and in the sense mm-hmm. that like yeah we'll just get like one of those rappers in there like they'll eat that shit up and then yeah Of course, Biden has, I mean, it really is quite sickening to hear this stuff where he talks about uh, Gianna Floyd, George Floyd's daughter, like, you know, running in and asking if she can sit in his lap, and then he gave her ice cream, and it's like, God, he really is like the paternalistic uh, plantation owner. I mean, like Mm -hmm. like like, that's what that is, and, you know, that so many erstwhile radicals or whatever like don't recognize that or you know don't understand like it is the exact same thing like i don't i mean we'll get into another like we'll get into more of like why biden like still is very like psychopathically american um but i it's just seeing that today it was just made me extra mad because it's like on some level it really is just like they they're still just throwing out the most low effort bullshit and assuming that everyone what is just gonna swallow it and like i think they're definitely getting some pushback on social media but that only just makes like gives headache to like their unpaid interns you know yeah doesn't actually change any of their calculations
0: yeah so um yeah it's been one year um and obviously um um derek uh shithead chauvin uh was convicted i i I mean well technically he was convicted of murder but if you look at i mean we go back to one of the episodes that we did about uh kind of broke it down like basically um the the way the charges are defined he was pretty much convicted of manslaughter not first-degree murder but um anyway yeah chauvin has been convicted uh chauvin fuckface shithead asshole asswipe chauvin was convicted so um but that obviously hasn't led to a decrease in um in police killings of black people but actually there's two articles i want to bring up in light of the one year anniversary of george floyd um so basically well the, the one is in uh reveal news and the other one is in the new york times and they're they're different but um i think they're both good to discuss um in light of the one year anniversary of uh the murder of george floyd and so the reveal article the title is the fight the fight has to change why ferguson activists ditch police reform and then um uh the new york times article actually we'll get, let's get into the new york times article and and then um and then the reveal one uh, uh,
1: the the lying failing new
0: york times yeah so the the article the title is a year after george floyd pressure to add police amid rising crime so the, i i picked this one because it <laughs> says a year after george floyd that's the title and the, okay, the, the su- yeah. and the subheadline is Los Angeles like other cities across the nation is facing a rise in gun violence and the police budget is growing um so basically um I, I think we kind of mentioned this um in the episode on um anti-asian hate crimes but uh there there has been like a a spike in crime particularly in big cities and in some small cities I'll read one I'll read one paragraph and then and then we can kind of get into it it said uh It is a trend mirrored across the country where crime is skyrocketing in many big cities, putting putting liberal leaders under pressure to balance the needs of activists against the concerns of some residents about rising violence. In New York, where homicides grew by nearly 45% last year, crime is dominating the discussion in the race for mayor. Last week in Philadelphia, where crime is up sharply, Democratic primary voters overwhelmingly back the city's progressive district attorney despite opposition from police unions even smaller cities haven't been spared the rise in violence louisville last year set a record for homicides with 100, 173 and this year is on pace to surpass that so basically like um even in, even in oakland california there's been like a, a rise in, in crime and then um there's also a campaign in um in san francisco uh, to recall um, District district Attorney uh, Chesa Boudin, who um, was elected on, on a very radical, like, you know, sort of pro-Black Lives Matter platform. Um, I, I, I don't think he's a full-on abolitionist, but, I mean, he's close to it. He was elected DA of San Francisco, and now there's a campaign to recall him. And so far, I think the campaign as of last month uh, raised um, $170,000 in comparison to Buden's allies uh, who raised $200,000. And so, um, locally, they're trying to pin the rise in crime in San Francisco on Chesa Buden for being, for free, for being two, um, uh, I guess, uh, coddling criminals. That's basically what people are God, saying. God, it,
1: it really is the fucking 80s all over again. Jesus <laughs> yeah. Christ.
0: Yeah, and so... Um, and and here's the next paragraph, and then, and then um, yeah, let's go into it, because uh, the New York Times actually did mention the obvious. Uh, crimin- so it says, Criminologists and law enforcement leaders largely blame the rise in violence on two things. A historic increase in gun buying by Americans with a flood of Ill- illegal so-called ghost guns, often assembled with parts bought online and are untraceable, and the despair and economic devastation of the pandemic. Still, while the number of murders in Los Angeles last year at 350 was the highest in more than a decade, it was nowhere near the number of killings in the early 1990s when more than 1000 people were killed in a year, and other crimes such as rape and burglary are down so far this year compared with numbers from last year. So basically like, you know, that means like um the violent even though crime is up now, like it's not as high as it was in the 90s, nowhere near as high, but like it's obvious that the rise in crime, particularly violent crime, is directly related to the to the pandemic and the fact that like there is almost there's very little economic relief during the pandemic, and with the you know these these quarantines and this you know overall not even just the economic lack of economic relief and the economic follow up, but just like the overall collective malaise um yeah it's gonna drive some people fucking nuts and when you know in a country like the united states with a shit ton of guns uh, people are gonna you know pop off for random fucking reasons so like that that that's just obvious that the rise in crime is because of the pandemic so ballooning police budgets i don't see how that that doesn't get uh, to the root of it. Uh, I mean, it never does, but,
1: you know, this is why we have all these cop shows and mm-hmm. all that shit. To link, to put the link in people's minds that, oh, well, the police respond to crime. Police respond to crime. Crime goes up and, like, you know, then you have all fucking little FBI nerds. who They're all bases that are like, well, you know, murders went up this percent, so therefore we have to add, you know, th- th- this many police officers. And it's like, no, no. That, that That's like, that's not how they, I mean, you know, when you drive more people into poverty and immiseration, then you do need to beef up the, uh, security apparatus, the repressive apparatus. That is true, but that's the point, is that's like what the police are there for. Crime is just a misdirection, but because, you know, we've, and look, yeah, nobody wants to like get their car jacked or whatever, like, yeah, I got, you know, nobody likes to get their windows busted in. Or you know have their house robbed or whatever. That fair enough, but it's also like anyone with a like a half functioning brain that isn't just you know just asphyxiating themselves on like petty bourgeois ideology understands like what the cause of this shit is. And so the fact that like the fact that like the New York Times can even like run stuff like this and still it still have credibility is like a testament to just like actually how far up our own ass like America's head still is because this is not the kind of thing that like should um well for I mean first of all like no major city has like significantly defunded the police. Like I know like people who just mainline reactionary media are like, Well this is what happens when you defund the police but like that never even happened. Right. And like yeah. all calls for police reform just end up also end up giving the police more money so somehow like no matter what happens on either side the solution always ends up is being giving more money to the police so that's like the first part but the second part is just like no you need to like that's not (laughs) the idea that like oh well crime's going up therefore like no i mean we yeah we know the causes of it solve the root causes of it don't just like throw more you know psychopaths with guns at the problem but you know americans that mean this is this is all part of you know wanting to preserve some imagined sense of normality so that's why people fall for dumb shit like this
0: yeah yeah i mean it like i said it's obvious that the bright the sort of spike in crime is related to the pandemic i mean like for, you know, I think for people not to overlook that connection, I just think, I think they're being disingenuous. And yeah, like, the police budgets haven't really been cut, like, across the country. So, you know, I I think what it is, is like, they're trying to pin, instead of like, pinning the blame where it really is, which is the pandemic they want to use the rise in crime um as propaganda against the demands of black lives matter and delegitimize it yeah. i think that's that's really what it is and i think like um even with the anti asian hate crimes like i i think you know the the way it got when black people got scapegoated even though like the you know black people weren't the majority of people committing the hate crimes like Black people got scapegoated because I think, um, there's, like, a kind of alt-right segment who wanted to use the specter of black criminality as a wedge between black and Asian activists and basically say, like, oh, the reason why there's these hate crimes is because of criminal black people. Um, you know, like, there are, like, you know, some even alt-right Asian websites who traffic in this stuff. Um, so... I, I think, and the reason why I bring that up is because, like, I think it's similar to people using the spike in violent crime across the country as like a wedge against Black Lives Matter. I think that's really what what it is is people, yeah, they're trying to use like you know the spike in crime as a wedge as propaganda against the yeah. demands of Black Lives Matter. It, yeah, it's 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 a way to tie the movement
1: to criminality in the minds of reactionaries mm-hmm. and it's also hilarious it's like why the fuck do you care like what the crime statistics are in the city that you don't even live in you live in the fucking suburbs right so you don't have to deal with any of it that's why you have your own little fucking mind like uh mcmansion palaces and you know your little gated
0: communities like you don't have to deal with it so why should you care right even um in neighboring antioch california which you know we've talked about on this podcast um there has been like you know, some uh, slight increase in gun violence, but last time I checked the stats, it's not in double-digit numbers, but I, I can definitely tell you, like, you know, a city like Antioch got really hit hard by the 2008 recession, and that definitely increased poverty and also had an impact on, you know, crime in the area in terms of making it worse. So... Yeah, like crime is definitely related to social and economic factors, and that's always been the root of crime. And you know, when you tackle the root, that root, then you know, you don't really need like you know, police with you know, fucking tanks and bazookas and shit. But that's really what it is. Like, I think like there's like a propaganda effort to tie, yeah, associate Black Lives Matter with criminality. And use the you know rising crime in cities across the country as a wedge against the demands of uh, you know abolitionists and black lives matter activists rather than tackle the root cause of the crime which is fucking obvious which is the damn pandemic and you know let's keep in mind that biden the stimulus checks and had it out under biden were actually less than donald trump um and even donald trump's stimulus checks weren't shit so from both administrations, we barely got any. Yeah, and, and if you're homeless, you didn't really get any of
1: that. Like, right? Yeah. So, so. It, yeah, I mean, it is. I don't. I don't want to say that like it hasn't been extremely rough, like out in the streets. You know, as it, like if you like, you know, live or work around like a you know or an area that's going through shit, like you can see, like you can see that it that like it's definitely hit people pretty hard, but. <laughs> The idea that, like, that is supposed to negate the movement is, I mean, it's absurd, but hey, you know, that is, uh, that's the ideology. That's that's the power structure. Mm-hmm. They, they have to fight this shit.
0: And, and the next article I want to talk about is, yeah, the one in Reveal. This was uh, released earlier this month. Um, again, the title is... The fight has to change. Why Ferguson activists ditch police reform? And then the sort of subtitle is: St. Louis didn't see a single substantive victory for police reform, thanks in large part to a police apparatus that stymies accountability. So you know, like, let's let's you know, let's rewind. because um, Michael Brown was killed by police in Ferguson on August 9, twenty fourteen, and that was the first wave of Black Lives Matter. Um, and uh, there's. There's been an effort in, um, you know, St. Louis and Ferguson to create a civilian oversight board that would, um, uh, according to the article, that would review the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department's internal investigations into officers accused of excessive force, abuse of authority, and discrimination. So, um, the bill passed in 2006, but the mayor had voted it, so, um so after you know the first wave of black lives matter there was like an extra push to pass the bill so it got passed um in 2015 um but you know along the way like you know police have you know they haven't been turning over complaints and police unions um have been you know blocking a lot of efforts for investigation and reform so this article mentioned, and I thought it was interesting that they, they mentioned this, uh, because that first wave of Black Lives Matter um, kind of, uh, it, it really did, like, I mean, the first wave and the second wave, I think, really radicalized, like, a sort of generation of new activists and people who are, you know, politicized, a lot of people, um, especially millennials and Zoomers. So... Um, uh, Anyway, so I wanted, to, I wanted to bring this up. I want to, I want to mention um, a couple paragraphs. So, okay. The trajectory of the Civilian Oversight Board shows just how difficult it is to reform police departments from the outside in St. Louis and across the United States. But the challenges for the board and the hurdles faced by a long list of other police reforms have also provided a revolutionary lesson to the new generation of activists who came of age during Ferguson. They're leading a new movement, one being watched across the nation with a more ambitious ambitious agenda for confronting structural racism. Rather than trying to push reform from the outside, they're audaciously taking control of the city's institutions from the inside. Um, As a 24-year-old, Kayla Reed threw herself into activism after Brown's killing, eventually becoming one of the reform movement's leaders. In the beginning, she hunted down solutions to the problems she saw in each individual case of police brutality, and she quickly saw every reform she pushed for fail to fix anything. And so on April 20th, um, Tishara Jones, she was sworn in as St. Louis's uh, 47th mayor, um, and, she's the, and she's the first black woman to serve as uh, the city of uh, the, the, the mayor of um, St. Louis so that's Tishara Jones and then um, the other paragraph was, men- was mentioning Kayla Reed but um, basically what this article is talking about is um, essentially like people within the movement like changing their tactics and um, trying to push for reform from inside the city's institutions and the legislature because that's that's where a lot of the reforms have died because of the political pressure and power of police unions and how much, how much political power they have, not just on the city level, but also the state and even federal level. So I I thought it was interesting. I'd want to bring this article up just because I think, um, you know, it's the anniversary of George Floyd's death. And I think it's important to kind of trace the, you know, go back to the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests and see how these activists who came of age during the Ferguson uprising, like what they're doing now in terms of um, uh, sort of tactics that tactics that they're changing up. So, yes, uh, so based on this article, like a lot of these activists are trying to push for reform from within the cities' legislative. Does that, does, does that mean like
1: sit like city council meetings, like running? For yeah, city
0: so. Yeah, yeah, so basically, okay, so this is, um, um okay, so, it, yeah, so he, here's here's another couple of paragraphs, because it, it, gets, it gets to that, that question you asked. So, um, Terry Kennedy has spent his life trying to do the same for this new generation of activists like Kayla Reed, and he understands that they have to come up with new tactics to meet the moment. Racism and white supremacy is adaptable, Kennedy said, as opposed to being so overt, it has become more institutionalized, so the fight has to change. Um, As Reed watched reform after reform die, she began to see where power truly resided and decided she'd been doing it all wrong. She drew up a whole new plan back in 2016. Reed would build a movement that would become as politically powerful as a police union. Any prosecutor, alderman, or mayor who wanted to get elected would need the movement's endorsement. If they didn't support reform legislation, they'd have to think about how it would impact her support. They would take control of the reins of power they would change policing as we know it so police stop killing black people so that's basically what what they're doing is essentially yeah so like not just for city council but like you know for prosecutors mayors basically what they're trying to do is build a grassroots um a political force of equivalent strength as a police union that would endorse like you know specific candidates who run So it's kind of like, um, I'll I'll give an example. So our revolution, that's like the Bernie Sanders sort of like progressive uh, sort of, uh, I guess, grassroots organization. in in my county in California, Contra Costa County, um, our revolution, they um, endorse specific um, local candidates for like, um, you know, people who do like parks management, um, mayor, uh, city council, school board things of that sort so basically like what they're doing is um, building up like a grassroots political force that would add political pressure and endorsements to specific candidates and they would um, basically support candidates who have like police reform on on their uh, on their you know their 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 uh, you know what they're pushing for in the campaign and you know matching up with their record. So um, their their platform—that's what I mean. Yeah, sorry, their campaign platform. So that's pretty much what they're doing, which I think is um, an interesting uh, shift. But but I do think that like that approach of having movement pressure from the outside that could, you know, either endorse or not endorse like that kind of pressure, I do think is a, is a good way to go. If they're going if if basically if people are going to engage the electoral system then that seems like a way to go instead of instead of just like um i think like with the uh, the whole uh i guess justice democrats and the the squad approach which is just like at this point you know electing people to congress who like i guess yeah uh, p- people can like stand and shit like that this is more about like you know endorsing or not endorsing certain candidates for like local 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 offices from like yeah prosecutor to alderman to mayor to you know city council people um so yeah Yeah, i thought thought that was interesting but yeah go ahead i mean that's i i think
1: that you know the person she was definitely correct in kind of locating the problem um you know you do the power map like an organizing training right like you know i think that's that is a good I think it's good to recognize, like, yeah, the police unions, like, are part of the problem. And, you know, yeah, I mean, we shouldn't really consider them unions, but, right. you know, fair enough. But, I, you know, the, the thing about, like, uh, just creating, like, endorsement organizations is, like, it can very easily, uh, you know, just be, like, a way for... Just as a springboard for like you know careerist politicians where like they know mm-hmm. they'll just play you, yeah um, and and having the mechanism to um actually punish them if they you know try to sell you out i mean that's that's the question you know I think that I think it's fine to you know form those kinds of organizations uh because that i mean that's how they do it on the right, and that I think is how like that is part of, like, how power is, you know, accrued. But, you know, you need you need some, like, mechanistic force beyond, um, mm-hmm. you know, beyond just, like, re- writing strongly worded op-eds. And, you know, this is where, like, oh, <laughs> the word union, oh, this actually is where it comes in. Because what you need is organized work. You need an organized labor force. That's the only... Thing that can actually, like, have, like, a functioning mechanical response such that, like, yeah, if you, you know, if you have, if, if these people have to, like, win support of, like, labor organizations that are mobilizing politically around these demands, like, then, you know, one, that is, like, the, you know, built-in mechanism to get people, to get people to actually vote because people don't vote in municipal elections, and so, you know, right. Arizona, yeah. And these are like not high, you know, the most most of these kinds of are revolution type stuff. I mean, it's not like high budget stuff. It they can't do all the direct mailers and blanket the city with ads the way, you know, developers can. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I you know, you can see how that works in like any kind of city if you're actually going up against the entrenched agenda. It is like it is mostly people power. Uh which, you know, people power can do a lot, but If it's not tied to, you know, the labor movement and organizing the working class, then it does just become a special interest. I mean, that's that's the thing. I mean, like I say, and I guess I'll have to keep saying it, you know, the labor movement is the engine like that drives the car. And so wherever you want to go, you need a car with an engine in it. So I'm not I think I think that like that's a good Tack, but I'm saying that to achieve the tangible results that we need, that like it has to go hand in hand with, you know, organizing the working class.
0: Yeah, and and even especially, like you know, um, uh, organizing like specific working class communities, like that. That's like, um, yeah, like because they do say here. If they didn't support police reform legislation, they have to think about how it would impact her support. So I think like, yeah, it seems like based on this article, they have like some kind of, you know, leverage and punishment consequences in mind. I'm not sure what exactly those. Right. Right. But, right, but um,
1: the question is, because you're not just going up against the police unions, you're also going up against the developers and like, right. all the other moneyed interests. And, you know, that that are always going aside with the police unions.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's where, like, yeah, you do need labor power, but, you know, um, that also gets into the question, like, you know, which unions you support, because some unions are completely captured by yeah. the Democratic Party, um, but, yeah, I mean, like, uh, is is this kind of, like, outside political leverage that we need? Um, so it's yeah, I just wanted to mention that because I thought that was interesting to to see how like they've been changing their tactics. I do want to just a, me- a quick mention there was a, a young woman in Britain. She's a UK Black Lives Matter activist named Sasha Johnson. She was um, shot in the head and she's in critical condition. And so um, apparently London Metropolitan Police uh, arrested five people on suspicion of the attempted murder of Sasha Johnson, so, I've been hearing on the grapevine that, um, she, she, uh, this follows, like, numerous death threats as a result of her activism, um, and so, yeah, she's 26 years old and she kind of rose to prominence, um, during last year's BLM protests in the UK, And uh, she's a member of the newly formed Taking the Initiative Party, which has been described as Britain's first black-led political party. So um, as far as I know, she's still alive and she's in critical condition. But uh, I just want to give a quick mention because that was pretty – that's pretty, um, you know, like – it's pretty troubling news to hear that. Yeah. Um, yeah, prayers
1: up. But also, ah, the student has become the teacher, you know?
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, you know, we are, you know, England, England's uh, redheaded stepchild ran away and then came back and now is uh, exporting all its terrible ideas. I mean, look, England's got plenty of homegrown fascism, don't get me wrong. But it is just, uh, you know, yeah, the, you know, this is this shit
0: is global um but yeah so we're at we're at 33 minutes um i also wanted to just give like a brief mention to um um there is a so v- uh, viola fletcher she's the oldest survivor of the tulsa massacre she's 107 um she testified uh like i think this is last week she testified uh to u.s congress about um You know just the when a racist mob in um may 31st to june 1st 1921 they attacked the city's black wall street um killing like an estimated 300 black people and burning more than 1200 businesses homes and churches and she was just seven years old at the time and so um her and her 100 year old brother are seeking reparations um uh, for the tulsa massacre so um yeah that i wanted to kind of mention that too before just to kind of a quick mention because uh, that's really because imp- that's you know really important and it's not just tulsa there's been a there are tons of race riots and massacres of black people uh, yeah. throughout american history that to tulsa is just it's just it, one of it, it get it gets more headlines
1: because it's like uh you know the the petty bourgeois get to be like look you know they went after us because we were making too much money uh you know which like that doesn't justify but yes the ones that were perpetrated against uh black organ labor organizers like the elaine massacre in arkansas uh two years prior it is i do find it interesting that those don't get the same kind of amount of attention and placement in HBO TV shows and what have you. Not that it's a competition, but, uh, yeah, I wanted, well, you know,
0: Palestine now. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah.
1: This is about, um, you know, there has been a supposed ceasefire, which, uh, which, you know, I don't know what that means necessarily other than like, you know, uh, the media can go back to ignoring the reality of the occupation. Um, but I saw this article that po- it popped up a few, it's a few days old, but I saw it and it made me angry. Um, it's from NBC news and, uh, it's entitled, I, th- and I think it's a good, I'm, I want to break it down cause I think it's a good, uh, exercise in like how ideology functions in the media inside Biden's quiet, relentless diplomatic scramble on Gaza. As the first rocket fire was exchanged between Israel and Hamas, first of all, yes, notice how Hmm. as soon as the rockets fired, no one, everyone stopped talking about Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, Biden settled on a strategy and as he had through out the 2020 campaign, Biden adhered to it despite mounting criticism from Republicans and even his own Democratic Party. His approach was stylistically muted and substantively more hardline than some of his allies had expected. It was driven by a singular goal, to end the violence as soon as possible, so he could train his focus back onto his domestic agenda. Okay, see, there we go, right? Um, You know, <laughs> Some, I mean, the the crux of this piece is basically that, you know... It was through Biden's uh, just supreme levels of statecraft. He was able to, on a series of phone calls, convince uh, Netanyahu to accept a ceasefire. But the idea that Biden was just driven, you know, they always like to be like, well, we just want to end the violence. Just end the violence. It's like, no, the whole fucking thing every day is violent. What do you mean you're going to end the violence? You end the violence when you end the occupation. But the idea, but also the idea that, oh, well, this is just... You know, a distraction, and he needs to just handle this. You know, little problem. Just tie it up neatly. Um, to, uh, but ah, here the here we go. To accomplish that, Biden chose not to publicly lay bare disagreements with his Israeli counterpart, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Although the two have their differences, he said little about the public. He, he said little publicly about the issue and entertained few questions during the topic. Uh, during a trip to Michigan this week, Biden even joked about running over a reporter who wanted to ask him a question about Israel. That did happen. Uh, which, you know, like we, like I've said, the dude's fucking Rhodesian as fuck. Nobody wants to admit it, but he's a fucking sociopathic plantation owner, except he's like a plantation owner who's bad with money. So he's just like in debt constantly. Uh, that's, that's basically Joe Biden. And he backed Netanyahu's Gaza Assault on Gods to an extent that surprised some fellow Democrats and angered others. My see, you know, my sense is that the White House doesn't see a lot of benefit in negotiating in public with these Israelis or Palestinians, said Senator Chris Murphy. This town has gotten used to diplomacy being conducted on Twitter. So it's kind of shocking when the Biden administration decides to have more private conversations with our allies and adversaries and share less information the Trump administration did publicly. I mean... What? yes yes right you know it's yes like let's return to the you know gentlemanly diplomacy of you know the united states on the world stage that gave us things like the iraq war you know right. back when back when back when we had serious statesmen okay um
0: yeah serious serious uh statesmanship like the uh statesmanship like the cuban missile crisis yeah like that yeah yeah or, right. or the bay of pigs invasion that yeah
1: yeah yeah or or the gulf of tonkin you know yep. back back when people knew how to uh back you know back when the wasp the wasp elite really knew what the fuck they were doing mm-hmm. um you know the white house cast a ceasefire announcement thursday between israel and amas is a victory for what it had dubbed quiet intensive diplomacy this account of how biden majored navigated the first major foreign policy crisis of his presidency is based on conversations with 10 administration officials i mean first of all anytime any time ar- any any article is quoting anonymous administration officials it's poor it's pure bullshit that's like That's why they're, you know, not going on the record because they're feeding you bullshit. Um, So, you know, uh, it says a source familiar with the discussions and a senior administration (laughs) official said no conditions were attached to the ceasefire. But even before Israel and Hamas agreed to a ceasefire, you know. Your administration officials had begun discussing what type of aid the u.s would provide to rebuild gaza and offer humanitarian relief um this is i mean yes okay first of all yes this you know intensive strong diplomacy placed absolutely no conditions on israel you know who are like is our strongest ally uh to do anything but of course you know we then the u.s is supposed to come in and provide aid and it's like no, the problem is that like uh, like Israel doesn't let in concrete, so that's why Gaza can't be rebuilt. Like they can actually mm-hmm. look after their own affairs, um, but uh, you know Israel specifically does not want them to. Uh, she, early in the conflict, why, the White House and the State Department privately conveyed to the Israelis that Biden wanted a swift end to the violence administration officials feared a long fight and some were concerned that Israelis would follow through with threats of a ground invasion. Biden's national security team told the Israelis he wouldn't accept a scenario like the 2014 conflict, which lasted 51 days and left 2000 Palestinians dead. Uh, I mean, that is, I mean, it's true. I I forgot about like the ground invasion. And that's always like when Israel really has the bloodlust going on is when they do, a ground invasion into Gaza. They did one during Castled in two thousand eight, and then yeah, they did one in twenty fourteen. Otherwise, it is just like a week of of bombing, mowing the lawn, as they like to call it, uh, which is you know says everything about um, about lawns and you know suburbs and settler colonialism. It's very it's a very apt metaphor, but also. It's extremely ridiculous that Biden, like, was like, listen, listen here, Bibi, Listen here, BB. I'm not going to tolerate a ground invasion and be like, oh shit, well, he's really, Americans are really serious. We better not do it. It's like, they're going to do it if they want to do it. And America knows that. And America, like, has no actual pressure, has never actually applied pressure on Israel to stop them from doing anything. If there's anything, that actually caused, like, there to be a ceasefire. Um, which, you know, it, it's pro, I mean, it is kind of mostly like, you know, Israelis like watching poll numbers. And it's like, once they get the uptick, then it's fine. Uh, but there was actually like a general strike in the West Bank that yeah. was pretty significant. And that was, the- and that was actually something where I was like, oh shit. <laughs> now, you know, because part of, part of, the zionist project involves like conscripting palestinians into a labor force because like look if you're like some you know american from long island or, or new jersey or whatever you're not gonna move to israel to like be a fucking janitor are you crazy right you know. so like or or even you know all right you know they can't import enough uh ethiopian jews to to be a proper labor force so they're going to conscript palestinians but the problem with that is that like you know if the palestinians mobilize they can withdraw their labor and here's where you know here's where everything ties together i mean it is the combination of militant resistance plus organized labor or an organized working class that can go on strike that can actually you know draw concessions from oppressive forces um and Far more so than appealing what, to any conscience of any you know imperial hegemon
0: and, the, and that's what you call leverage like that's like when you're like leverage is because I, I mentioned leverage a lot mm-hmm. leverage is basically like your or else to that that's the thing you can use to force a concession to get what you want is an or else okay we want this if you don't do this then this will happen it's an or else like if you don't do do this or else this will happen and the lev- the main like the biggest thing of leverage that um the left has in the United States is labor like that's that's huge um and with black people definitely labor um you know so it's it's not like uh strongly worded op-eds or uh Plans and spreadsheets,
1: or I mean, I, yeah, I mean, you do need those things. But like I said,
0: right? Is <laughs> is it, but th- that stuff without leverage yeah. is nothing. like Exactly. That's, like you need leverage, and yeah, withdrawing labor par- power is a major form of leverage. I mean, there's other kinds of leverage. I mean, rioting is a form of leverage. I mean, let's, you know, people yeah. don't want to people don't want to think of you know right or any kind of like spontaneous resistance as political leverage but that's another form of political yeah leverage.
1: Auto- autonomous rebellions i mean i think you know it's it, to draw a greater historical analogy like in the cuban revolution like there were general strikes but that wasn't enough to uh you know to cause batista to fall like he needed a militant response too but like also but you know the guerrilla war army also like had to link up with the labor movement and that's the thing it's like you know that like whatever you think of hamas or whatever like it first your opinion doesn't fucking matter if you live anywhere except palestine if you're not palestinian your opinion on hamas doesn't matter yeah Uh,
0: first of all (laughs) also uh hamas they were legitimately voted in so
1: yeah yes and you know they haven't had a that, that was 15 years ago and Palestine hasn't had an election since uh, yeah it, Israel does not want that to happen um but you know the it is the combination of of you know militant resistance plus uh, you know organized labor, an organized working class that like could actually sort of change things because that kind of unity, where, you know, Hamas is responding to stuff in the West Bank. It's not seen as like Gaza is one thing, West Bank is the other thing. But then also that like the entire labor force is also acting in solidarity. That is a new development. Um, mm-hmm. That is a new development sort of in the history of the occupation or in the recent history of the, the occupation. So it does point to greater unity and solidarity among Palestinians, which is the only thing you can really hold your hope out for that that, you know, the strength of that is the only thing that can really carry uh anyone through to like an actual good uh outcome. But, you know, I'm just throw a couple more quotes around here where it says, Yeah, on Wednesday, in another written statement, uh the White House said he conveyed to Netanyahu that he expected a significant de-escalation today on the path to a ceasefire that was the harshest language towards Israel ever (laughs) attributed to Biden during the crisis. Um, you know, I, it's like, um, it's like, I, yeah, guys, I, that whatever, you know, I'm sure they had a few calls, but whatever they said, the idea that like, this is, you know, what NBC news is reporting with these unnamed senior administration officials are reporting like, is true in the sense that like there was an unknown like oh we don't know when this is going to stop and so therefore we need to, you know biden needs to do diplomacy hard hard no serious diplomacy to reign a- israel in so we can have a ceasefire or whatever i mean it really like they don't they know exactly how long this stuff's gonna last like they have their you know reasons for it and like whatever you know, they're probably just talking about bullshit and they're you know, it's like, okay, well, yes, you know, this is what you have to do. I mean and then and then they're probably just yucking it up for like the next forty five minutes, you know, uh, swapping stories about uh, you know, I don't know, different race acts of racism, you know, Netanyahu committed when he was in Philadelphia and uh sure. Biden committed when he was in Delaware. I mean, you know, the you know, I don't know corn pop stories i mean that is but that's like because it's you know that's the whole thing is that it's like you know these this is our greatest friend and ally you think that you know when it come when in like in these actual serious situations they're gonna be like look israel uh you need to you need to stop bombing schools and you know sewers okay
0: i've had it about up to here with the malarkey uh uh, you need you need to stop bombing AP, the Associated Press yeah. building. Yeah, they'll, they'll still show for you anyway. <laughs> yeah, the Associated Press. Yeah, um, th- like I said, they they're building. Israel bombed their media office, and it was like a it was like a big building. It was a media building that had um, the Associated Press Al Jazeera. So Israel bombed it. They said um, it was housing Hamas. Um, And the Associated Press, rather than like, you know, challenging those claims like like any, you know, uh, uh, (laughs) media outlet with any sense of spine and integrity, they just like, oh, okay. Um, You know, and so to make matters even worse, they fired a young journalist um, named Emily Wilder, who, like us, is a Stanford alum. She's uh, class of 2020, so she just you know, graduated from Stanford and, um, she worked as like, uh, she got hired in early May, um, at the Associated Press after, um, 10 months of reporting for the Arizona Republic. Um, so yeah, she, um, uh, she was, you know, fired by the AP, this is like a couple, like a a couple days or a couple weeks ago, um, and apparently it was because of her, um, activism in college like her pro-palestine activism and her black lives matter activism apparently anyway um i'm going to read her statement this is what she said um she said this statement this is on uh yeah may 22nd 2021 it's on her it's on her twitter you can follow her at vv1 lder so i guess it's like a, another way of spelling Wilder. um she said, uh, I started at the Associated Press as a news associate, a junior level position on May 3rd, following 10 months of reporting for the Arizona Republic. In Arizona, I covered breaking news, criminal justice, and Black Lives Matter protests. I built a respected reputation in the newsroom and in the communities I covered, and I was proud to land a job at the AP. Last Monday, the Stanford College Republicans... <sighs> Launched a smear campaign against me, attempting to expose my already public history of activism for Palestinian, hu- Palestinian human rights at Stanford University. I was transparent with my editors, and they assured me I would not face punishment for my previous activism. I was told my editors were only hoping to support me as I received an onslaught of sexist, anti-Semitic, racist, and violent comments and messages. Less than 48 hours, the AP fired me. The reason given was my supposed violations of the AP social media policy sometime between the first day and Wednesday. In that interim, powerful powerful, powerful conservatives like Senator Tom Cotton, Ben Shapiro, and Robert Spencer repeatedly lambasted me online. When I asked my managers which exact tweets were in violation of policy or how, they refused to tell me. In the end, rather than take whatever misstep I made as a teaching opportunity... As is the point of the news associate program, it appears they took it as an opportunity to make me a scapegoat. This is heartbreaking as a young journalist so hungry to learn from the fearless investigative reporting of AP journalists and do that reporting myself. It's, it's terrifying as a young ro- woman who was hung out to drive when I needed support from my institution most. And it's, in raising, and it's in raising as a Jewish person who grew up in a Jewish community, attended Orthodox schooling, and devoted my college years to studying Palestine and Israel that I can be defamed as anti-Semitic and thrown under, thrown under the bus in the process. I am victim of the asymmetric enforcement of rules around objectivity in social media that has censored so many journalists, particularly Palestinian journalists and other journalists of color, before me. The compassion that drove my activism is part of what led me to be a reporter committed to just critical fact-based coverage of untold stories now after being fired after less than three weeks at my job i have to ask what kind of message this sends to young people who are hoping to channel righteous indignation or passion for justice into impactful storytelling what future does it hold does it promise to aspiring reporters at an institution like the associated press would sacrifice those with the least power to the cruel trolling of anonymous bullies what does it mean for this industry that even sharing the painful experiences of palestinians or interrogating the language we use to describe them can be seen as irredeemably biased while the last few days have been overwhelming i will not be intimidated into silence i will be back soon so good for her she's not giving up um apparently i just saw this so rebecca pierce tweeted retweeted this uh so um i think it was yeah sopam deb so uh this is a tweet from Sopom Deb. This was uh yesterday. Um this is in a Washington Post article. So Emily Wilder, this is Emily Wilder told reporter uh Eric Wemple um of of the Washington Post and this got screenshot. This is this is this is something. In a long interview with Eric Wimple, the Eric Wemple blog, Wilder expressed admiration for the AP's journalism and thrill at having joined the organization. Had her managers laid out their concerns about any tweets, she says, she would would have been receptive. After the backlash launched by the Stanford group, Wilder did have a discussion with management in which she received an admonition for having Black Lives Matter on her Twitter bio. She promptly removed it, she said. Following her dismissal, she restored it. They said it was probably towing the line of objectivity, says Wilder. The point is that I did it because I took them seriously and wanted to be at the AP. So basically that must have been it. The fact that she had Black Lives Matter in her Twitter bio and that was enough. Along with like, you know, her history of, you know, solidarity with Palestinians at Stanford. Um <laughs> I mean the, so the Associated Press got their fucking building bombed by Israel. In Gaza and they're just like oh well okay I guess Israel they're right they had Hamas so they just this this to me like you know I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say this as someone who um is a freelance journalist and writer and as you know I have, my, I have my own like sort of record in media um this is another reason why I think like it's important for black people and other marginalized people to own and control our own fucking media because like <laughs> if this is the state of mainstream media that even the AP and the AP I do respect the AP I've, I've I've met you know when I was when I was at Guantanamo I did meet AP reporters and I will say AP staff a lot of AP staff criticized the decision to fire Emily Wilder so I think like the, I'm I'm pretty sure there's some real internal labor and management issues even within the ap because you know with media there still is a worker boss relationship um but like this this to me illustrates like this the state of fucking media right now in the united states That like the associated press which is like you know they're kind of seen as above the new york times in terms of just like you know yeah well, well also because like every
1: local (laughs) newspaper Like, basically, runs whatever the runs the AP wire for any, uh, for, for like Mm -hmm. any national or international coverage. So they basically are, them and Reuters are basically kind of just like these, you know, I mean, actually, like the paper record, like they're just the standard, like objective, you know, quote unquote take on like basically anything that happens. And so, I mean, I do understand those conditions, but it is also, yeah, it's just incredibly. Sickening and cowardly, and I think it also um, it shows the relationship that uh you know the the way like mobilization in the Republican Party works because you have like a group of college Republicans, which by the way, most psycho all one hundred percent psychopaths, every single college Republican, evil motherfucker, and total sociopath. Uh, to be it to be yes. to be nineteen years old and in a Republican group. No, sorry, you're irredeemable. Um. But yeah. that like, it, mm-hmm. you know, that these fucking, which, you know, th- I mean, I'm trying to remember like the Stanford review, um, which would always whine about being Ugh. silenced, like in its newspaper. Um, fo- oh, that founded by Peter Thiel, founder of PayPal, by the way. Uh, fun, fun mm-hmm. fact. Um, yeah, like those people basically, they start a smear campaign, um, targeting someone who basically didn't do anything. And then, you know, they get retweeted by you know, it gets picked up through like the smaller media into the bigger media, which is like Ben Shapiro. And then that goes into, you know, direct line into someone to an actual senator who, you know, then can use his platform to like bully a media organization into basically, uh, you know, collecting. I mean, I don't want to say scalp, but <laughs> I mean, that is I, that is how they think about it for sure. Um, and that, you know, they get to do this like because they enjoy making, uh, their enemies suffer. Um, and they enjoy hurting people. And so, you know, that's, that's why they do stuff like this. And, you know, on some of you have to go along with it because otherwise you lose access to, you know, the one of the major political parties in the, uh, in, in the country. And I mean, I think, you know, I guess my pitch to liberals about some of this stuff is like, if you, if you're, if you're still like, like, we all can basically understand that, like, the Republican Party is an anti-democratic small d force, right? So what does it mean that, how can a country be a democracy when, like, one of the major political parties is, like, just inherently anti-democratic? Like, if, if this is the kind of behavior they get to do and get to be rewarded for, like, how, how can that be a democracy if, like, half of it is just completely fascist at this point,
0: you know, but no one wants to right. answer that question. Yeah, and so like, um, I mean, you know, shout out to Emily yeah. Welder, like you know, but but like it's I wanted to bring it up just to show like the the state of. I I just thought, I thought that was just <laughs> really galling on the on the AP's behalf because like, you know, they, again, they got their building bombed by israel and it was on video in gaza um and pretty much did nothing you know in in response to israel like literally one of their own fucking buildings was bombed by israel and they did nothing but then they fire this young journalist uh, over like because again like yeah like uh, the ap it's not like um it's not it's 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 not like um you know uh i'm thinking of like you know the nation magazine or any kind of like maybe progressive, you know, because there is like, there's different types of journalism. Like AP Reuters are more like just a facts man. And then then there's others that are like, you know, they combine fact-based reporting with like, you know, an actual like political perspective, which, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think there's a place for just purely fact-based reporting and then a place for like your know, analysis from a different perspective, which is pretty much what we do here um and then like but still be grounded in in like reality and in facts and still be rigorous in that regard um uh but like you know and and i understand like you know the ap they're gonna have their different philosophy when it comes to um objectivity and like you know the standards they have for like new reporters but it seems like based on what she said like she was you know despite her activism she was willing to just like you know do her job just as a reporter but cover stories that don't get covered which i think is that's needed especially in a place like ap reuters or anything anywhere else but then she gets fucking fired over like a really silly reason but like you know jeffrey goldberg gets to keep his fucking job i mean he's still <laughs> the editor the in chief baby, so like right, y- right yeah so did this is show this to me like i'm, I'm just gonna say I, I just think like the u.s media is yeah. completely full of shit um so that's why i wanted to kind of add that uh i think this is why it's important for um i'll just focus specifically on black people but you know in the case of palestine i think it's, it's definitely relevant for palestinians to own and control our own media because you know when you when you can control your own narrative then you have actual power because to me like the, the real issue is not like objectivity versus not objectivity to me is like who has the power to control narrative that's that's the real fault line it's not about like it really like objectivity like that's not that's not the root of the issue and i'm, I'm gonna say it again the real issue is who owns and who owns and controls the narrative i think what this you know latest incident in palestine showed that israel was is losing control of of the narrative and more it's losing the court of public opinion because more people can see like what's happening to the palestinians and so it's becoming less taboo to support the palestinians but yeah i just had to Mm -hmm. mention that because i i just thought that was just completely ridiculous and also very uh cowardly of the ap to buckle under pressure from like the organized far right yeah you do shit like that and then wonder
1: why people don't trust the media it's like uh you know what do you what do you expect but uh that's you know that's that's the that is those are the systems of power and that's how they operate <laughs> yeah
0: um anyway we're at an hour seven i think that's that's a good way yeah to, that's a good way just to wrap up wrap up this episode um yeah we talked about george floyd and uh black lives matter in palestine so you know if you enjoyed this episode um again definitely support um support us uh patreon.com slash real sankara hours five dollars a month um gets you uh um bonus episodes sorry yeah bonus episodes five dollars a month um if you donate anywhere between a dollar to four dollars a month um that does not get you bonus episodes but it does keep the podcast afloat but what I'm gonna do actually for the show notes I think from now on I'm gonna put our uh paypal link. Cause I know, like, you can, um, uh, directly, like, um, you know, support us. I mean, I know we mentioned Peter Thiel being sack of shit, but you know, these are these are the platforms. Yeah, you like the world well, Patreon pays you out through PayPal, so you have to have it. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's pretty much. That's why we have a PayPal account. But I realized I'm gonna try something different. Um, if you want to make like a one time donation. Or, or just like you know, chip in you know money just to support the podcast. If you, if you, that's if you don't want to do, the if you don't want to get our hot month, amazing
1: oh. bonus content where we talk about
0: the blues, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'll put our PayPal link. So, like, if you want to give like a one time, just like hey, just want to chip in some money to support the podcast, I'll put the PayPal link in the in the show notes. But yeah, patreon.com slash Real Sun Car Hours. Um, that's where you can you know, support us and then also soundcloud.com slash real soncar hours. You can listen to us on SoundCloud as well. Um, and also Spotify and all that good stuff. Um, and follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter. Um anyway, yeah, so we'll be back with another bonus episode next week. Um but anyway, let's uh, do our normal sign out and Keep stay dangerous. Faith. Peace y'all